Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. We gather this next hour around the gift of the inspired and true Word of God and the Word made flesh, our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, who is your light and your salvation. And His light shines on us today as we change things up a bit. This Friday, we transition to studying First Kings. But in between, our plan will be to stop, pray, and study a few psalms at a time from this point forward. And today we start at the beginning in Psalm Psalm 1, where the psalmist tells us, Blessed is the man. Now, I have a little bit of story with this, because when I first became a pastor, one of my friends would read psalms to his kids at night. And so I thought, wow, that's a great idea. So I thought, what should I do? And and I thought, which psalm is the best? Which one? So I just opened it up, and I read the first psalm. And it was a lot of fun because my daughter kind of played it out as we would read this, and now she's 15. So it's kind of crazy to think about. But Psalm 1 has always been something deep on my heart and also on our lips. So today, what does this mean? Blessed is the man. As we know, the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for their support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us to be strengthened by God's Word, we had the honor of welcoming Dr. Timothy Seleska, Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and also the author of the Concordia Commentary on Psalms 1 through 50. Dr. Seleska, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thanks, Brady. It's great to be here, actually. I'm glad it actually is. <laughs> so, it's a joy to have you with us, and and this is you know our first time together at least. And uh, so, is there any way you can introduce yourself and the work uh, that you do at Concordia Seminary? Yeah, sure. So I was a parish pastor for 15 years uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and then also in Napoleon, Ohio, and had a wonderful time in pastoral ministry. Uh, so I kind of raised my family in both places when I was. Uh, in Cincinnati, I went to grad school at Hebrew Union College, which uh, is a school that uh, uh, is for Reform Judaism, and they have a graduate program in all kinds of Old Testament, Ancient Near Eastern studies, and sits across the street from University of Cincinnati. So I took courses in their grad program, the Classics Department as well there and came to the seminary to teach Old Testament in 1997, and it's hard to believe that it's been that long. Uh, so I teach, um, as you said, uh, Old Testament. Um, I will teach courses on the prophets. I'll teach courses on Torah, teach courses on wisdom literature, um, teach uh, Hebrew language lab courses, and, of course, the special interest is courses on the Psalms. Mm. I'm also teaching a grad course right now on what's called archaic biblical poetry. So it's more difficult poetry for the students, and it's given them uh, a real challenge, which is fun to do, actually. Uh, so that's kind of the main thing I do here. And I'm also the dean of ministerial formation, which is a blessing to be able to do that. That means that I um, kind of oversee all of our formation programs, and so that would be our MDiv program, which most people are familiar with, Resident Alternate Route program, our Deaconess program that's here on campus, but also our online Deaconess programs, mm. and then our uh, distance programs, the specific ministry, pastoral 
pastor at uh, SMP that some of you may be familiar with, mm-hmm. and then also CHS, Center for Hispanic Studies, and then finally EIIT, Ethnic Immigrant Institute of Theology, which is for um, our uh, first generation or maybe generation and a half immigrants that are kind of coming into our country from all over, and we're blessed to be able to provide some theological education and training so that they can serve in their communities as well. Oh, and I also coach basketball, but didn't this year because of COVID. So I really miss that. Miss the students. I don't know who can play on first year team or not because I haven't seen any of them play. It's really distressing. So I'm that's, stressed that, about that. Well, if that's what if that's what you're most stressed about, that's good. That yeah, is yeah, good. I think then. you're right. But yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's not what I'm most stressed about. But you know, it's one of those things. That's right. That's right. Well, I was going to ask you about that because one of my memories during my time at seminary is for intramural, you were one of the only professors that would play with us for intramural yeah. basketball. Yeah, you still do that? I love doing that. Oh, I still do it. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love playing uh, ultimate Frisbee in the fall. I don't play flag football. I never did because the uh, potential for a knee injury would be career-ending for a guy like me. I do yeah. play ultimate, and I play uh, softball in the spring. And uh, we're being allowed to do some intramural sports now in the last couple months, so I think I'm going to be doing tennis. Um, and I uh, can't do softball because they, they have scheduled for Saturdays, so I have other ah, that I need okay. to do. But I would do that, too, as well. Uh, I still like to play pickup basketball in the gym. I'm down at the gym now. They've open it up for limited use. So I always sign up and make sure I'm down there four or five days a week, actually. Wow. Good for you. Good for you. Well, it sounds like a good time at Concordia Seminary. As we mentioned in my email, what a joy it was to be there um, for those three years on campus and and very thankful for all the work that you do. So my encouragement to our listeners is to continue to pray for our seminaries in Fort Wayne and in St. Louis as they teach and mold, not mold, uh, form our servants for our Lord Jesus Christ in their country and also around the world. Uh, today, Pastor, you know, I just want to get into this. So as we search the scriptures, can you begin us in prayer? Sure, I'll be happy to. Uh, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, first of all, I'm very thankful for this opportunity to gather around your word in this wonderful conversation. Uh, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit into our hearts and among us so that our words are blessed, uh, so that they can be a blessing to others. Keep us ever mindful that we stand under your grace and um, that we have been uh, blessed with this wonderful gift of forgiveness and the promise of eternal life uh, through the death and resurrection of your Son. We celebrate that, especially this season. We ask that you give us wisdom and strength in our words and in our actions to show forth your love in tangible ways to the people that we live among and, and with. Uh, even as things in our country just kind of seem to be falling apart, uh, I ask that you give us uh, opportunity to serve you faithfully in all the areas of our vocations and life that you have placed us all across this country and the world, really. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Reminder to everyone that if you have any questions for Dr. Seleska, as I said, he's written the book on the book of Psalms, uh, 1 through 50 at least, definitely Psalm 1. So if you have any questions this morning, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Now, as we begin a new book, you have written and you've spoken um, on how Psalm 1 influences how we interpret 
all the Psalms. So I really want to, I really want to break this down in simple ways. I know you're teaching a, uh, a very high end course on poetry, but I think I want to start really simple, if I may. Is sure. what are the Psalms? I mean, what are they? Okay, so uh, I love. Um, I'm going to paraphrase Luther's description, but they are the songs and prayers of God's people. Um, as we wait for God to fulfill his promises, and as the waiting gets very, very long. So uh, t- tell, us, tell me a little bit more. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit? I, I love it, but I, I, sure. now I'm taking back because that's really good. Now I have to rethink it. So unpack that a little bit, yeah. Well, yeah, I kind of uh, maybe embellish Luther. I don't know. But uh, what I what we have to see is that the Psalms are relevant to us in the uh, period between the first and second coming of Christ, mm. just like they were relevant to God's people in the Old Testament. So what I want us to see is that uh, the relationship between us and the Old Testament Israel, the faithful Israel, God's chosen people, is in the same place in that we are both in this position of waiting. And so mm. God gave Abraham this promise, all right? And uh, through the Exodus, he, you know, he actually says, you know, you are now my people. I've taken you as my own. And so in the Old Testament, the exodus from the slavery and really land of death of Egypt through the waters of Red Sea to a new life as God's people is their Old Testament, quote, saving event, right? And so God then brought them into the promised land and and yet the promise wasn't filled up yet um, to be a blessing to all nations. And, and you know, Israel was under constant pressure from other nations and especially from within with their own sin and idolatry and all those kinds of things until they finally went into the judgment of the exile where God promised a deliverance from the exile. And he remember a lot of times the prophets speak of it in terms of another exodus bringing to new Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet even there, as we know, when you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, for example, the promise wasn't filled up. I mean, Israel was still subjugated to other nations. Um, Yahweh seems to have disappeared from the front stage of their lives. And so they, and yet the prophets had said, spoken in these great terms of the uh, redemption of Israel in terms of people flowing to Zion, uh, in terms of everything being set right, like we see those promises in Isaiah 11, and I mean, even Isaiah 9, and throughout the prophets, you have these wonderful promises that haven't been fulfilled yet. And so you see, between the first coming of the Lord in the Exodus account and the fulfillment of the promises of the prophets, the people of Israel were in this the midst of waiting. So in their mm. present distress, where God sometimes seems to have abandoned them, uh, they were asked to put their trust and hope in the promise. So they're always a, a, a forward-looking people, all right? Jesus came, and he died and rose again. So here's our big redemption event. And yet the New Testament tells us that's the first fruits of the resurrection. So see, we are still in this position of waiting, uh, just like Israel, the Old Testament was in this now, not yet uh, position. 
So we as God's people are in this now, not yet. We have been redeemed. We have been delivered through baptism. We are children of the promise. And yet uh, death is still around us. Sometimes God seems to have abandoned us. And so these are our prayers and cries as we are in this period of waiting. And the waiting sometimes seems to get awfully long. So does that unpack it enough? That unpacks it beautifully. Thank you so much. Because... That that leads into other questions that that I was going to uh, question, uh, ask, but you just answered them. So it oh, cool. it it comes down to something as simple as this: that that we are waiting, and what should we do while we wait? Right. We should pray. Is that kind of what yeah. you're saying? So yeah, I think as Christians we forget this that uh, this is the present age, and so we as we focus on the present we ask ourselves how are we to live as god's people uh, i did a interview yesterday about titus 2 where actually paul spends quite a bit of time advising titus hey here's how god's people live in the present age based on the fact that jesus has redeemed us while we wait for the blessed hope to come the other the next appearing so he talks about the first appearance of the lord and now we're waiting for his appearance and it's too often we forget that as God's people, that we, what's unique about God's people is that we're put in this position of waiting for something really incredible, unimaginable to happen to us. So the question is, what do we do in the meantime? And the Bible doesn't tell us to just twiddle our fingers, right? There's all kinds of things, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. How, how are we to be in this world? And the prayers and songs that the Psalms give us help us with that. Um, as we struggle with doubt and with anxiety and with pain and with the problem of evil, both within us and outside of us. And so these kind of form the language of our hearts and the language of the faith of the community, which explains why so many of our psalms and uh, orders of service and liturgies uh, take phrases or images from the book of Psalms. And and that is something I think about this a lot because we're not we're not good at waiting. Right. Yeah. Good. <laughs> and so yeah. it's it's interesting to think about how you know God knows this and so how yeah. does he fill that empty space? Well, he gives us his gift of the yeah. Psalms. I mean, yeah. is that I mean, have you thought about that much or any thoughts on that? Well, no, I think yeah, so so uh, there's this wonderful image uh, Bonhoeffer gives of the, the Psalms are the only book of the Bible that uh, function both as God's words to us and our words to God. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I have an interesting story that I won't tell you right now for sake of time, but uh, um, the our words to God, he's, we learn how to speak to God of our needs, the deepest human needs, through the language that he has given us. That is why you find this experience, you've probably found it, people, you'll, people will uh, hear a psalm or read a psalm and they'll say, this is just what I needed to hear because uh, this is what's going on in my heart. So, the la- so it provides words when we don't have words, especially when we're suffering, people lose their language, uh, yeah, as everybody yeah. knows, you lose your language. Um, and, so, and this is also why people who are not Christians can resonate, they can resonate on an emotional level, not necessarily a theological level right away, but it, it gives an emotional kind of authenticity to what they are feeling and can lead 
to conversation. So the Psalms is one place that's a good meeting place for Christians and non-Christians to have kind of discussions about the faith, because people can relate to some of the experiences of the psalmist on at least an emotional or heart level. And then uh, that allows a space for Christians to begin to uh, put details onto what our hope is as God's people, as our hope as Christians. And so um, I think that the Psalms are very helpful for that. And that's why I've even found people who are totally secular, that are counselors, that have used their Psalms in their counseling. That's pretty interesting. That is interesting. And yeah. one of the places, when you when you look at all the categories of the Psalms, I don't want to get into all the categories right now, yeah. but one that, as you're talking about waiting, and we're not good at waiting, is when people are going through suffering, it's the imprecatory Psalms or the, the individual lament Psalms yeah. that I find myself going to all the time. For example, Psalm 6, verse 3. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? And and, and I, my college roommate was is a, probably agnostic is the best term and and great dear friend best man of my wedding and one of the things I remember was a turning point for him to kind of realize that that he struggles with faith but guess what so do I yeah and so the Psalms I should have used this in college as you say that uh, is just saying wow look here even in, the, in uh, Psalm six or other David says where are you O Lord I thought you were going to do this but you didn't any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I think that that uh, it, it's very true. So I was reading, uh, there's this book, it's in my commentary, actually, this reading the Bible with the damned, and it was this uh, chaplain, uh, Eckblad is his last name, who would, he was a guy that went into prisons to deal with the most marginalized people. And so he was actually trying to minister to people who were um, in prison uh, illegal immigrants who had su- suffered terribly in their life, who uh, were about to be deported, you know, all those kinds of things. And he actually uh, ministered to them through the Lament Psalms, and specifically imprecatory Psalms. And what it does, and this is something I advocate, is what you don't want to do is use Scripture to close down conversations as if it's knock down cognitive arguments, but rather to open up conversations. And so what he did is it allowed people to give a voice to their anger within or their bitterness or their hurt or their pains. And so it was part of a conversation about those kinds of things that um, the, so the, the uh, prisoners were surprised that there were such words like this in precatory Psalms in the Bible. How can you speak like this to God? And, um, uh, they're off-putting to more pious people like us. Uh, well, you can't speak like that to God, but see, the Psalms give license to that because it's in your the expression of your deepest emotional turmoil that um, now you can kind of begin to come to, to grips with it. And uh, the chaplain Ekblad then used it to um, bring people to a witness of God's forgiveness in Jesus and what that means in relationship to their anger and hurt and loneliness and fear. I mean, I'll, you can imagine, I, I cannot imagine being stuck in a prison without a country, without any resources, not knowing what's going to happen to me and what, what that might, what that even looks like. And that the Psalms can bring some sense of peace and healing to people 
um, is a pretty amazing thing to me. As as we, we may ask him, as dear children ask their dear father, I think yeah. is the catechism um, way, and you, you said that so beautifully. Now, yeah. I want to ask this before we get to our text, because um, I think we could do this all day. Is so what I'm hearing you saying that, you know, in scripture, it's one of the only places that God speaks to us and he gives us words to speak back to him. Is that kind of what you were saying? Yeah. So the Psalms Um, function is both God's word. So they're inspired scripture. They're here, these words, and then they function as our words because we use them as our prayers in both personally and in our worship services. We pray them as a community. We pray them as individuals. We pray them at a hospital. We pray them at the grave. We pray them in all walks of life. Right. And usually we just narrow it down to Psalm 23, but there's 150 yeah. of these. So we have opportunity all the time. And yep. I, I heard a pastor one time talk about how he was kind of embarrassed to say this. And then I was embarrassed because I never thought of it either. Is he said he went into the sanctuary to do his devotions or his prayer time. And he just he didn't know what to pray. So he just prayed a psalm. And he kind of was like, wait, in the past, he kind of thought, well, I'm not really praying right now. I'm just reading the Bible. Yeah. But he said, no, I'm praying. And so yeah. this is a comfort. Is, have you heard experiences of that or any thoughts on that? Well, I think that that's actually a very important point because we're used to thinking of prayer as, dear God, we give our requests. We give our thanksgivings. Uh, we may give something of what's going on inside our hearts, you know, tell him uh, what's in our life and then, you know, ask that he... Um, be with us or strengthen us or bring healing, whatever it is. We think of prayer in a very narrow sense, but <laughs> when you start reading the Psalms, your conception of what you mean by prayer broadens considerably because you get different voices in the Psalms, different um, speech patterns. Like even Psalm 1 is not what you would say a prayer to God where you say, dear God, so-and-so, right? I mean, there's nothing kind of really being asked for there. And so if nothing else, when you think of these as our words to God and as our prayers to God, it makes you rethink what we mean by prayer. And that's why there's no holding back in the Psalms, in the imprecatory Psalms are are those, or even the Psalms say, wake up, O God, why are you sleeping? Why have you abandoned me? You know, they they are not afraid to um, bring everything that's going on in their hearts to the one who's actually in control of all things. There's like the third time we used the word actually in our conversation. <laughs> i got to stop that. It's my emphatic word for the day. That's Keeping right. The Hebrew That's word, right. be'etzim, actually, be'etzim. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as Lutheran Christians, we believe that the whole Bible points us to Christ. How do the Psalms point us to Christ? Oh, that's a complicated question. So I think <laughs> that when we... <clears throat> So when we uh, look at those voices, so I always tell my students, please, and this may take more follow from you, please don't read a psalm and just jump to Jesus. Okay. 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 Here's the reason. Um, There's a lot of reasons, but if I can, I won't put these in any particular order. But first of all, um, as soon as you jump to Jesus, like uh, when you read psalm, let's just take... uh, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just those words. You put those in the mouths of Jesus, all of a sudden uh, you have um, put the psalm at arm's length from you and your own emotions. Now, I want to step back first. So that's the first thing. So here's one thing. 
when you read scholarship on the Psalms, they keep the Psalms at arm's length. So they're more interested in the historical questions, right? You read any commentary and you'll see it'll be categorized as a Thanksgiving Psalm or a lament or a praise Psalm or something like that. And then they'll, what are the historical circumstances in which it was said or spoken? And so what's happening in their readings of the Psalms is that they keep the Psalms at arm's length that means it doesn't influence you. It doesn't have anything to say to you. You, you are treating it more like, uh, again, I tell my class, I use this metaphor, like a pot that you find in the ground. Uh, archaeologist finds a pot. He looks at the shape of it. He tries to put it in its historical setting, its use. It's all those kinds of things. But the pot never really influences. It's, it's his object of study. But the Psalms are more than that for us. They're not, they are words uh, that we seek to live by. Mm. So there's another way that Christians can distance the psalm by saying, well, this is about Jesus. And as soon as you do that, all conversation stops, because what else can you say? All right. Ah, okay. So first of all, you have to resist that move until it's appropriate time and place. So first of all, we read the psalm within the context of the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel, to see what the psalm gives us. And that gives you the mental space and spiritual space, really, to understand what is in the heart of the voice of the psalmist. So in Psalm 22, for example, the title says it's by David. So you get a chance to hear David's prayer, David's voice, David's heart, okay? Um, And then begin to see how you relate to that psalm. Uh, Where can I identify most closely with, do I feel abandoned by God right now? If so, why? If not, why not? Again, this has part of my whole thing in starting to carry on a conversation with the psalm, not thinking of it as an object to be studied, but as something that helps you ask important questions about yourself, your relationship to God, who God is, um, all those kinds of questions. And so you spend a lot of time there, okay? And now you're ready to... to begin to read the psalm, and I will say, in the light of who Jesus is and mm-hmm. what happened to him. And so then we see that the psalm is not only the voice of David, but we see it also on the lips of Jesus, uh, especially in his suffering on the cross, okay? There's a whole second half of that psalm that is not about his suffering. It's a whole different ball game when you switch, when you get about halfway through. It's amazing, and the church doesn't emphasize that. We only get to the first half. Because uh, we're always in Lent, I guess. But uh, there's actually a part that really fits better with the resurrection. Um, but my point is now, we have to connect the dots for people. How do you get from David to Jesus? And my answer would be this fancy word. We look at what happens to people in the Old Testament and institutions like um, the sacrificial system and events like the Exodus as foreshadowings or foretastes that are fulfilled, first of all, in Jesus when he, in his own life and ministry when he was here on earth, but also um, are fulfilled uh, very often at the end of time and in the meantime for the church. Hmm. And so um, we begin to interpret David's words in light of who Jesus was and in light of the fact that in the events of David's life, and as the uh, bearer of God's promise, Second Samuel 7, he foreshadows in his victories, his success, the um, 
prosperity he brings, the peace he brings, he foreshadows the promises that are filled up more when Jesus came. And mm. so Jesus' suffering and Jesus' redemption uh, become a, another way that that psalm is filled up. And so, so what I would say fulfilled should be in a sense of filling up because mm. any prophecy in the Old Testament can have more than one fulfillment. And that takes us farther than our uh, field than our topic for today. Absolutely. But, but the main but, point is, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm no, I'm just going to say, we're going to have to connect those dots and be filled up with the promise of our Lord. Right after our break, we are studying Psalm, Psalm 1 with Dr. Timothy Seleska, and we'll be right back. In 1878, this book quickly sold over two and a half million copies. Now, over a hundred years later, it comes to life as a powerful audio drama. The story of the lost. There's nobody loves me, and nobody never did. And the good shepherd who brings them home. For God so loved the world. On the next Lamplighter Theatre. Saturday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. When you start to see God, the undaunted, determined, dead serious love of God in Jesus, by faith you start to see him everywhere else, even when it feels like the world is against you. And perhaps no one learned this better than the prophet Jonah. Dr. Michael Ziegler, this week on The Lutheran Hour. Sundays at 12.30 and 5 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO. You hear our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to KFUO at KFUO.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. And welcome back. We are studying the Psalms, specifically Psalm 1 with Dr. Timothy Seleska. And actually, we're going to get to Psalm 1 right now. What okay, do you can, I, I, can I just have a follow-up about the don't jump to Jesus? I want to make sure I have one thing clear. Then I'll take sure, a please. minute. Okay, please. so the don't jump to Jesus. Just remind, I just want to remind everybody that the Old Testament does not equal the New Testament. And what you don't want to do is make the Old Testament just kind of a code for the New Testament because then all the theological significance of the Old Testament will be drained, all right? Uh, and this is kind okay. of Luther's move, because then we'll miss what God actually did in works of judgment and salvation for his people. There is a history that he has, and that helps inform us of who Jesus is and what he did. So that Jesus didn't just drop down in the sky from a vacuum. God's works with his people Israel led up to foreshadowed, theologically informed Jesus, 
his person, his work, and his ministry. You cut all that out, and so you lose a, a dimension of Jesus' work if you just go right to the New Testament. So I'm going to stop there. That's very good. Yeah, that's a very important distinction that we always had to remind it, as, especially as Lutherans. But yeah. here's, and there's no but there. As we look at Psalm 1, I want to read the whole thing, okay. uh, which isn't that long, six verses, and then go back, and then you can highlight a few of the things that really come, stick out for you. Obviously, you've gone through this many times. And then to go verse by verse and talk about and pray. I guess we, we were praying here and looking sure. through everything. So let's go to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So as you look at Psalm 1, uh, any background, what we know, what we don't know about this psalm? Well, I would say that it's usually categorized as one of those wisdom psalms, and so people will probably notice right away that it's different from Psalm 2, and certainly from Psalm 3, it's 4, 5, 6 that you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um and um, there are certain themes that kind of jump out at me. And also, I mean, it is rather unique in some of its wording um, that we can talk about as we go through the, the psalm uh, that kind of sets it apart. But again, there's no, in this case, there's no title to how, I mean, some of the information in the titles tell you the melody that we've lost or um, sometimes the circumstances in 13 psalms, for example. These, these have none. And so a lot of people uh, from even in the early church suggested that Psalm 1, and sometimes both Psalm 1 with Psalm 2, function as sort of an introduction to the Psalter. And, and in my commentary, I end up mm-hmm. pushing that, but trying to give people a reason why or how to think of it that way. That's what my goal was, because it's not usually talked about that. It's not, not usually talked about or understood, okay, it's an introduction, how might it actually function how does it relate to the other psalms that seem so different quite often? So let's do this. Let's read each. I'll start with verse one. We'll go through okay. each verse and then we'll talk about it. So verse one, okay. blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. All right. So he talks, he talks about the blessed man. What, what, tell us more about this. All right. So what you're going to get is a little <laughs> peek into my mind working as I'm working <laughs> through the psalm. So that's what you're going to get from me. And it'll be part of a conversation. Okay. okay. And so. the reason I'm doing this is so I can demonstrate a little bit about what I think it means to meditate on the psalm, which is this, uh, we're trying as best we can to bridge the gap between this ancient voice and us today and find out how it's relevant for us. Um, so I always become very aware of not only reading the psalm, but reading what's happening in my mind as I'm going through it. And so, hmm. um, I mean, a couple of things I know. So I'm gonna, I am going to read the Hebrew to the delight of your audience. Uh, yes. First three words, Asher, Aish, Asher. Um, there's wordplay there, which I, I'm not going to talk about. But one of the things I look at is, okay, what is this? Uh, how, so what do you take the phrase as? 
is it this, um, a person will be blessed if so-and-so happens or if he does this? Okay, so is, is it the promise of a future blessing? All right. Mm-hmm. Um, or is it uh, an exclamation, how blessed is the person who? So, in other words, um, when I, if you would say, if you would win a million dollars in the lottery, I'd say, Brady, how blessed you are. See? So it would be a more human to human, and that's how I take it. But you have to make these decisions. Um, And even the translation of the word, when you look at a lot of translations, uh, ESV has blessed, but a lot of translations have happy. And while those two are obviously related, we make distinctions in English. So there's also a translation problem. How am I going to understand that? Because someone... In in our Christian conception of things, someone may be happy, but not at all blessed, okay, as we think of blessing. Someone may be blessed, but not at all happy. Those two don't automatically go together, see? Um, So those are the kinds of questions that I start to have um, as I'm reading through the psalm. Notice that blessed is an abstraction. So one of the things that um, I would always try to do or encourage people to do is you have to fill up an abstraction with content before you can unpack it. Namely, so you have to ask yourself the question, blessed, well, what does that mean in concrete forms? How is the blessing? So so, uh, right away, those first three words start to create a, a, a sense of anticipation for me and expectation. So I have a question. What does it mean to be blessed? Is the psalm going to fulfill that expectation and answer it or not? Um, and uh, so, so even in this brief conversation, two things you've noticed. If you're going to meditate on a psalm, you have to slow way, way down, way, way down. And we don't do that. We kind of read through it because we're more cognitively oriented people and we look to get nuggets of truth out of it rather than try to see how it influences us. And so already I'm thinking, okay, what's going on inside of me? What's happening to me? Well, I have some questions, so I'm questioning. I have some things that I'm expecting to happen. Will that be frustrated? Will it be fulfilled? If so, how? Things are pretty broad open for me, and I let it be that way, much like the meanderings of a conversation. You know, when you have an enriching conversation, you always go away from it influenced in some way. And so that's what I'm after in reading through, all right? So one of the things, tips, when you see an abstraction, see if you can fill it with con- with something concrete. We're going to get a lot of them in this psalm, and I'll show you, okay? Yeah, so blessed yeah. is the man who does not walk uh, in the counsels of the wicked. All right. So notice, here's another thing I notice. Ah, is this a metaphor? And I would say it is because he's not saying a literal walk down the street. Don't ask a wicked person for directions on how to get to the gas station. Right. Sure. So walking is a metaphor for living. Okay. And it's actually a structural metaphor that you see throughout the the Psalms and that we also use in life. Life is a journey, right? So how do you find your meaning in your life? Well, if life is a journey, there are certain things that you need to do, 
certain places you need to see, certain events that need to happen, you know. So it's making use of a metaphor, life is a journey. So here's tip number two. After abstractions, ask yourself what you are doing when you identify something in the Psalms as a metaphor. We're going to get a number of them in this text alone, right? Different ones. Mm -hmm. They're different metaphors. So this first one is life is a journey. So to put it in more literal language, don't live by the advice of wicked. All right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So it's so life is a journey. That means, hey, you have all kinds of questions. Who am I going to associate with? Who am I going to take my direction from? Where am I going to go? I mean, life as a journey has this sense of movement from one place to another. Hopefully there's a goal. If there's not, what do I do? All right. Some people live by very different metaphors for their life. Um, and this psalm is inviting us to think of it as a journey. Hmm. All right. When you get to the wicked, notice that's another abstraction. What do you mean by wicked? All right. <clears throat> now, we fill that in. I personally, we do in our um, Christian community um, through other texts of Scripture and the biblical story of which the psalm is a part. So as we read the psalm, we're always reading it within the background of the larger story of Scripture. Uh, so that's one thing when he, we see pe words like wicked versus righteous versus enemy uh, versus the upright, you know, those ki that kind of language. Mm -hmm. The Psalms don't define what those are, but notice that your mind is already coming to some idea of what they are. And so, again, there's a place for conversation. Who do we mean by wicked? Well, it, just to think about the Psalm as a whole for a second, notice that he has this view of the world that I will describe as black and white. There's kind of no middle ground. Notice the metaphors. Mm -hmm. And the structure of the psalm, I'll do that. I ask myself, do I have that view of the world? And I would say, no. Distinctions are blurred for me. So, for example, in our circles, the words righteous and wicked are more complex because we would say, yes, I am a poor, miserable sinner. I'm wicked. And yet I'm righteous because of what Jesus has done. See, so we see kind of a both and. And we tend to look at people as not either you're righteous or you're wicked, but along a continuum, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, success of someone who we might deem as wicked sometimes looks much, much better than someone who we would consider faithful or righteous, a good person, who uh, suffers terribly. You see, so, so yeah. Yeah. but the psalm seems to be working with different categories. What do I do with that? How do I make sense of it, all right? And we can partially make sense of it in light of the biblical story of which it is a part and in light of our own beliefs, all right? But those are questions that I would begin to ask. You don't have to answer them necessarily, but as you're meditating now, you see how the psalm is challenging me to look at life a little differently than maybe I'm used to looking at it. What does that mean and why, okay? Um, those are the kinds of things I deal with, as you probably saw in my explanations of the Psalms uh, in the commentary. Yeah. So you're getting this. So my conversation right now is this is my mind thinking as I'm sifting through things. 
Um, it's much like in a conversation you might have with someone. Your mind does all kinds of things in reacting to someone. So someone says something, you say, boy, I don't agree. Now what do I do? Um, do I strike back? Do I defend myself? Do I nod my head? You know, uh, he'll say something you agree with. Oh, I really resonate with that. How do I respond? So in the conversation between you and another person, there's all kinds of things going on inside of you, which you're actually keeping pretty good track of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you read scriptures, we don't often read that way. And again, I'm just trying to emphasize that's how we should read. This is a voice from um, this Old Testament writer, which we take as, the, as God's word. How are we responding to it, reacting to it, sifting through it, interpreting it? in light of our own situation. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm just going to stop there. I've yeah. given kind of a number of tips for bridging the gap between you and the Psalm and for opening up com- the conversation of pretty important topics. Cause we're talking about life, how you live your life, who's blessed. What does it look like to be blessed? Those are big questions. So he's taking, well, first of all, that's a wonderful way for us to think through it because you're right. I'll go through a Psalm and let's just get this thing done. Let's just, yeah. let's just do this. Okay, I feel better. Let's move on. You know, we don't take right. the time to right. actually pray it, first of all. But secondly, right. to actually look at the abstractions. What does mm-hmm. it mean to be blessed? You mm-hmm. know, or, boy, you are blessed. Um, yeah. What is walking? What is standing? What is sitting? Talking about the Christian life and, and having that reality of, you know, that there's, <laughs> there's wicked and then there's uh, the righteous. And how does yeah. that look? So that summarizes verse one. Let's move on to verse two if we can. Okay, sure. So notice uh, what he's created is this asymmetry, and it's kind of lovely when you get it. And probably people feel it and don't know what to make of it because they say, how blessed is the man who does not do these things. Right, right. You are expecting him to say, but rather who does these things, right? Right. So notice if I capture what am I doing as I'm reading there's this strong anticipating anticipation through verse one. He's going to balance the symmetry and give me something to do to get blessed. Right? Ah, yeah. You see what and I'm you saying? don't get that. You but don't get you that don't, unless you wait, unless you take right. your time. Right? That's right. You're not going to get the affective, wait a minute, I have an anticipation that he's going to help me with this. Okay, I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. What do I have to do? But he frustrates it because he doesn't actually give you something to do. And people may have sensed that. Most commentaries try to make the next verse something you actually do. But it doesn't work that way. But rather, in the Torah, and I'm translating that again as a teaching or instruction. And again, it take too long to go into why it's not law, sure. strictly law. But uh, is his delight. So... <laughs> As I said in my commentary, delight is not something you can do. It's something that you uh, have or you're given. It's almost like a gift, right? In other words, I don't know, what's the, what's the one food you hate? You just can't eat it. Yeah, asparagus. So you could eat asparagus from now until the parousia, and you're not going to ever delight in it, right? You can't no, never. do no. delight. Uh, it's kind of like falling in love. If, you just, if your heart isn't in it for another person... It's you're, you can't kind of do it, see? Oh, so it's not a okay. choice that you make. I mean, I mean, you can see this in your kids. Sometimes, sometimes kids, they he really likes, she really likes to do this. She really loves to paint, or she really loves to dance, or 
he really loves to play basketball. And it's not like because you made her paint for four hours a day or something like that. Right. You fall into it. See, so you're, there's an asymmetry here. It's something you're given. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it repeats. And in his teaching, he delights or he meditates. Okay. Now when you stop on meditating, okay, there's all kinds of guides for meditation. I can do meditation, but then he frustrates it by saying day and night. Well, the conventional meaning of meditation, I can't meditate day and night. I've got other stuff to do. Right. Again, your po- the possibility of doing something is taken from you. Ah, yes. Okay, okay. So you're not, you're not um, encouraged to do anything. You're frustrated from doing it. All right? And so that explanation, how blessed is the person who does not do these things, is kind of a given. You're blessed if you don't do these things, but rather you delight in God's teaching. So notice the balance there, uh, where you take your direction, not from the Rashim Chatiim or Leitzim, the wicked the sinners and the scorners, but from the Torah of the Lord. So there's a whole different way of looking at life given in that verse that is, and I, again, I'll, just to jump ahead, I liken it to the, the parables I mean, with the parable of the sower, he sows seed on good ground, rocky ground, uh, ground with thistles by the side of the road. But it doesn't tell you how the ground got that way, see? That's the ineluctable gift of grace. But when the seed is sown, or the same thing, guy had a field, a guy sows um, weeds in it. Uh, what are we going to do? Jesus says, let them both grow together. At the end of time, it'll be cut down. That's a great analogy to what happens in Psalm 1 here, right? Because the distinctions that the psalmist is making may not always be visible to our eyes, okay? But uh, the the point that I want to make to follow up on on the next verses is notice that he does not give you something to do even in the next verse where he switches the metaphors because now you're a tree, transplanted to streams of water. So it's not like a tree walks to the streams. He's there by grace, all right? (laughs) And then by being there, by virtue of his being there, the fruit that he produces is natural. It's like, notice in verse 3, there's no work at all involved by the tree. You're planted by water. It gives its fruit in its season. Um, And um, I think that the last line... And so, in whatever he does, he prospers, is actually referring to the man. It's not part of the metaphor, because the word for prosper is not usually used with something the trees do, but what people do. Sure. Plus, if you see that as people, then it becomes almost scandalous. What do you mean people prosper? You see the just suffering and the unjust prospering all the time. How can this be true? And that goes into how I see Psalm 1 functioning in light of the rest of the Psalter, all right? Um, so you're, you're frustrated through that first three verses by being kind of unable to know what to do. Uh, you know what not to do, okay? Right, so right. I just kind of love that. And then notice that um, he finally turns to the wicked there uh, uh not so with the wicked. He used a totally different plant metaphor for them. And again, I'm going fast. If I was going slower, I would contemplate what it means to be 
to think of yourself as a tree versus the chaff. All right. 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 Daunting difference. Whose wind drives away. Notice the wicked isn't in control either. <laughs> He's right. like chaff. Okay. And now you have the what I would call the balancing of accounts in verse five, with this therefore. And so you're getting this logical conclusion in this psalm full of images and um, a whole different kind of perspective on life of the wicked versus the life of what we, who we assume is the righteous. So notice the one who does not walk in the uh, counsel of the wicked is called finally the righteous in verse 5. So you get that mm. comparison, all right? So, but you get this logic, therefore... Not will stand the Reshaim, the wicked, in the judgment, or sinners in the congregation of the Zadikim righteous. Now, I see, I see that as a glance to the eschatological judgment. Not every commentary does, but it's important to see that in wisdom literature and in Scripture in general, I'm interpreting that way in light of the larger story, mm. in that God promises finally in the end, and what we look forward to, what we're waiting for, what is our blessed hope? That uh, when Jesus comes again, he will set things right. Even death will be a thing of the past, see? And so, um, he, so the difference between the wicked and the righteous in this present age may be hidden from our eyes. So we live by virtue of the promise that in the end, the dividing of the two ways, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, will finally be shown. And that's why I love verse 6. Notice that throughout the psalm, Yahweh has been in the background. It's hardly been mentioned, just the Torah of of Yahweh. But now he comes actively on stage, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And uh, again, I take know, not in the sense of he knows about, But remember in the Bible, to know is this not only intimate knowing, I mean, sometimes it's used for the sexual relationship between husband and wife, but it's also used for God when he chose his people. You have I known among all the peoples of the world, he says in the prophets Hosea, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, to know means you take charge of, you superintend, you have chosen. So Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. So, but the way of the wicked just perishes, it leaves. So, if you just substitute, the Lord chooses the way of the righteous. And now you know why they're blessed. Because the Lord, who is in control of all things, is um, the one who is guiding the way. That, and that's why they're blessed, all right? And uh-huh. And so, uh, and, and so, the psalm, I would argue is the language of faith, not sight. Okay? So we, we would call the righteous person blessed, even when their blessedness is hidden from our eyes. Why? Because the Lord knows their way. The Lord is guiding them on the way. And so, as I said in the commentary, as you go through the laments and prayers and thanksgivings of the other psalmists, this psalm becomes a touchstone, right? So when God has hidden himself, they cry to him, but they also move to trust in God's chesed, in God's promise. And they mm. bring their words to him. Why? Because he's the one who knows their way. So 
this is kind of a touchstone that, that we can always go back to it as we proceed through the rest of the Psalms and the prayers and cries of God's people. Um, so I let me do this. Yeah, Dr. Seleska, we have 30 seconds, okay. <laughs> and I want you to go forever, but I can't do it. How yeah, would you sum it up in 30 seconds about the promises here? Okay, so I'm going to read this quote, uh, so the, and this is talking about the plot of our lives. The plot is fortunate by divine fiat, and one reaches a point not because one chooses, but because he has been chosen, that is, mm-hmm. redeemed. The price we pay for this redemption is the illusion of self-sufficiency and independence, the illusion of moving toward a truth rather than by moving than moving by virtue of it, of it, namely the truth. And within it, the illusion that destiny and meaning are what we seek rather than what has sought and found us. St. Paul wrestles with this mystery and has to correct himself in mid-sentence where he says, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, Galatians chapter 4. And so that's what we remember as God's people. We're known by Him, i.e. chosen by Him, i.e. He's guiding our steps. And as the famous hymn says, we walk with Jesus all the way, etc., etc., and so on. Reverend Dr. Timothy Seleska, Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary St. Louis, leading us through Psalm 1. Dr. Seleska, thank you for being our guest. You're very welcome, Brady. Thanks for having me. You are chosen, you are blessed, and the Lord knows your way. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.